You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Doris Kearns Goodwin. This program originally aired in 2013. glad to be back with you. In fact, when I think of the journey since the time I was here last time, I was just beginning Teddy Roosevelt and Taft. That's how long it took me to complete this book. And meanwhile, this extraordinary place has been renovated. It is so beautiful that to be back and see what's been done here and be part of this community means a great deal. In fact, I'll just tell you a little bit about why the book took so long. I have a few rationalizing excuses. The first is that I did indeed get involved with the movie that Steven Spielberg made of Lincoln and Team of Rivals, and it was a great experience. Um, I, I, I'd even argue that maybe it took a year or two off of the seven years that it took me to write the book, but it meant that at the very beginning I was part of a team. When you write, you write as a solitary person, and then suddenly you're part of a team. It was a, that's what made the adventure so exciting. So I got involved with the early speech or early drafts of the scripts, the two script writers, until finally they got Tony Kushner, worked on every script that he had, was able to see it. And then when Daniel Day-Lewis finally said yes, it took a long time for him to say yes because he makes up his mind this is the most important thing he has to do at that time. Um, Spielberg asked me if I would take him to Springfield for a couple days, a a terrible burden, um, (laughs) to show him the Lincoln house where he and Mary lived, the law offices, the state offices, and we became really good friends as a result of that, and he's just an extraordinary man as well as a great actor. Then I went down to Richmond, Virginia and watched the filming, and it was a a healing moment in the country in a way, because here the film was being made in the Confederate capital. And even 10 years prior to that, there had been a a kind of a protest when there was a statue put up of Lincoln and his son Ted on the same street where all the generals were. And now suddenly they opened this film with, with really warm hearts and it was a great experience. So anyway, then I went to Spielberg's house to see the first cut of the film. And what's so great about him as a, as a professional is that I was watching it for the first time with his wife, who hadn't seen it either, and he was inside pacing. He was so nervous until we came out of the theater, and then as soon as we told him we really liked it, we toasted with champagne. But that's what you want from somebody as successful as they've been to keep that going. So anyway, that took time. And then finally, um, the extraordinary experience of going with them to all the award ceremonies, because I went with them each time along the way. But the funniest experience was in New York, we went to the opening, the film opening in New York. And afterwards, I went out for drinks, and this will become important, with Daniel Lewis, myself. And we went to the Carlisle Hotel, and he has this special drink that he likes called the Old Cuban. So I only had two of them, which is important for this story, because then <laughs> later there's an award ceremonies in New York, and Spielberg introduces him in the award, and he's telling about how he had rejected doing this film for so long, but he wrote these beautiful letters of rejection, and, um, and then he finally agreed to be Lincoln, and it was the happiest day Spielberg said for him. So then Daniel got up to accept the award. He said, I don't reject everything. And then he said, when Doris Kearns Goodwin asked me to go binge drinking with her in New York, <laughs> I accepted. (laughs) So it was in the Wall Street Journal the next day. (laughs) So anyway, that is part of my rationalization for why it took so long, but it was a great vet vendor. 
The other reason it took so long is that I was desperately trying to finish it this summer. And it did happen that my beloved Red Sox and your beloved Red Sox had the most <laughs> incredible summer. So I had, I had told everybody for the last six months, I can't do television anymore. I told Meet the Press, I can't go on because I'm not following the news. I'm not even reading the newspaper. I couldn't do lectures. I couldn't even go on a vacation with my husband to Cape Cod. He went alone with some friends. I guess that doesn't make sense, alone with some friends. But anyway, I was reading one thing all summer long, and that was the box scores of the newspapers the next day. They made me so happy that I promised myself all summer long that it didn't matter if they got into the playoffs in the World Series, that they made the finishing of my book possible. But of course, as you know, they got in this incredible team that played like boys, that really were a team, that were characters, got into, we have season tickets, so we were at every playoff game, we were at, and we were at game six. And there, nothing that really quite equaled that. I mean, to be there when we won in the home region of this team, and we didn't get out of the park until two o'clock. They wouldn't even let us out of the, the parking lots, and nobody cared. We were singing, we were playing this song. And it was a great thing to draw our entire community together. So for all those reasons, I have finally just finished the bully pulpit. <laughs> and to be back with you, eight years after just the beginning of this whole thing is an extraordinary treat for me. So I can't wait to have the conversation and I'm honored to be with you again. Thank you so much. Wonderful to have you back here, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Can we have that one more time, please? It's been quite a journey for you since you were last here. It sure has, but it's been a good one. Well, um, I know we have a lot of important matters to discuss, but um, by far the most questions I have to do with what you think of Jacoby Ellsbury <laughs> signing with the Yankees. So can we get the really important stuff out of the way? Absolutely. <laughs> well, you've got to trust that the owners and the general manager made the right decisions these last two years 
when they unloaded those huge contracts of Crawford and, and Gonzalez. And even though I would love to have kept Jacoby here, um, I think hopefully they know what they're doing and I trust them after this year. And the only thing I've promised myself is that I keep thinking and reading in the newspapers, you know, well, he's injury prone, maybe something will happen to him. And I <laughs> promise myself that I won't wish for that because in my first holy confession in the Catholic Church, I had to admit that I wished that various New York Yankee players, while I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan, would break arms, legs, and ankles <laughs> so that the Dodgers could win their first World Series. And I remember the priest said, how often do you make these horrible wishes? And I had to admit, every night when I said my prayers. So there is no way I am praying that Jacoby Ellsbury gets injured, sort of. <laughs> no, not really. I guess he's safe then. Well, your book, uh, The Bully Pulpit, let's, let's talk about that, shall we, since we got the baseball out of the way. Tremendous economic and social upheaval. Give us a little sense of that landscape leading up to the turn of the century and the progressive era when Teddy Roosevelt and Taft were president. Indeed, the progressive era was the response to the Gilded Age that had grown up in the period between the Civil War and 1900. What had happened with the Industrial Revolution was suddenly the whole economy of the country changed. I mean, before that time, most people lived in farms. Now they were moving to the city in those decades after the Civil War. There was a sense in which big companies were forming, indeed trusts, as they called monopolies at that time, squeezing out smaller companies. Suddenly, millionaires had arrived on the landscape. Before that, you know, the wealthy guy might have been a doctor or a lawyer in a town. And so the gap between the rich and the poor was much greater than ever before. And there was a religious belief at the time, almost a politically religious belief, that government had no role in the social or economic life of the country. So it meant that any of the, the hurts that had been arising because of the Industrial Revolution were unaddressed. So you had unsanitary factories, you had people living in tenements, you had meatpacking plants that were doing terrible things to diseased meat, you had um, workers that had no workers' compensation, and there was this, and food and drugs were flooding the market without any regulation. So when Roosevelt finally comes in after McKinley was killed in 1901, bringing with him already a more progressive spirit, and what progressivism meant at that time was that the government had a role to try and right some of the wrongs of the economic order. And that was a whole new way of thinking that he had to educate the country on as to why it was responsible for socially and economically caring about the people who'd been hurt by the Industrial Revolution. So your two characters that you focus on in this book, Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, came from similar backgrounds, both a member of the American upper crust, but also some great distinctions between them. Talk a little bit about the differences in their upbringing and constitution. Well, it is true that they both came from upper middle class back background. Teddy's family probably had more wealth in the past than Taft's did, but Taft grew up in a very large house in Cincinnati. Teddy, of course, grew up in New York. Both of them had fathers who cared about social justice. Um, Taft's father was a judge and who really got involved in concerns about working people in Cincinnati. Teddy's father became a philanthropist and worked about, worried about newsboys, lodging, and did a lot of work with poor people in New York. So they both had that strand in them. And they were drawn together when they were in their early 30s, when they were both living in Washington. Taft was Solicitor General and Teddy was Civil Service Commissioner because they were both young reformers who believed they had to do something about the corruption of the age. 
and there weren't a lot of people in their class and background that believed, even believed in politics at that time. When Teddy went into politics, it was seen as an unusual thing for somebody of his class to do that. But they were very different. I mean, certainly physically, and I don't just mean Taft's weight. <laughs> um, Teddy, from the time he was young, had had asthma, almost a life-threatening asthma, and it became a very much of a reader and a quiet, not quiet, he was never quiet, he talked all the time, but he was observing birds and didn't engage in physical activities at all until his father worried that he was becoming an invalid. So he said, Teddy, you, don't, you have the mind, but not the body. You must make your body. So he engaged in this rigorous physical exercise for years and refashioned his body and then became a manic exerciser the rest of his life, boxing matches, wrestling matches, incredible walks through Rock Creek Park, um, raucous tennis games, whereas Taft was a more sedentary nature. I mean, interestingly, Taft grew up as a very healthy child. He was, in fact, um, even as a little baby, had needed more milk than his mother was able to give. They had to get supplementary milk. By the age of one, he was really overweight and fat child. Um, but they were happy with that at the time because in those days they'd lost their first child as a frail kid who died at 14 months. So this is great, this healthy kid. And by the time he gets to Yale, when he's 18 or 19, he weighs 250 pounds. And that's okay, actually, for his big body. But then, and later, when he becomes Supreme Court Chief Justice, he's happy again and he weighs 250. But in the middle, he went up to 350. So obviously he didn't engage with Teddy in these raucous tennis games. <laughs> And physically, they were very different. Mentally, though, they were opposites as well. And yet, I think that's what attracted. Taft was deliberative. Teddy was impulsive. I mean, Taft was kindly to everybody. Teddy could sometimes be brusque with people. And they both saw those strengths in one another. And I think that's what drew them together initially as friends. Teddy is such an interesting character to read about, and I'm sure to write about as well described over and over again as bursting into rooms. He's energetic. He has so much good humor and so much goodwill. And sadly, the only thing we hear about Taft is that he was fat. Right. <laughs> and then he had that tremendous mustache, which <laughs> I suppose would be the envy of many Brooklynites uh, today. <laughs> but what did you discover about Taft? What did you learn about him that you didn't know? Well, I really didn't know that much before, only that he had become president after Teddy and that he had then run against Teddy in 1912 in a very brutal fight. But I discovered through the 400 letters that they exchanged between the time they were in their 30s until Taft was in the cabinet that they had really had this much closer friendship than I knew, which meant that the breakup between them in 1912 was much more heartbreaking than I had understood. I hadn't known that Teddy had really handpicked him as his successor, that he ran his campaign, essentially, constantly giving him advice. Don't play golf. Taft loved golf. That was his favorite sport. Golf is a rich man's game. It's a dude's game. The working class don't like it, so stop playing golf. And stop just presenting whatever Williams Jennings Bryan says as if it's equal to yours. Attack him. Go after him. Smile always. Um, so on and on he advised him. I think the only thing he didn't advise him about was the campaign song that they ran for Taft in 1908, which was, get on a raft with Taft. <laughs> if you got on a raft with 350-pound Taft, you wouldn't be on it very long. <laughs> so anyway, and also learning that Taft was the, one of the most important people, if not the most important people, when he was Secretary of War. He wasn't just Secretary of War for Teddy. He was really Secretary of State because the Secretary of State was ill. The Vice President meant little at that time. So when Teddy left the country, as he, not the country, but Washington, as he often did, 
for his hunting expeditions or his train trips around the country. Taft was left in charge. In fact, somebody said to Teddy, what are you going to do? What's going to happen to the country while you're gone? He said, oh, don't worry. Taft is sitting on the lid. And then, of course, these huge cartoons <laughs> about Taft sitting on a lid. So I think that's what surprised me was the depth of the friendship, the interest they had in one another, the power Taft had. And then, of course, it makes even sadder that once he got into the presidency, it began to fall apart. They, they both <clears throat> married really interesting women. And one of the things that I found fascinating is both of them in college, uh, one as a senior thesis, one as a senior paper, wrote about equality for women. Which, where did that come from for them? Well, it turned out that you know Taft's mother was a rather um, liberated woman in a certain sense. She had gotten married later. She, had, she and her sister had been teachers. Um, they came from New England, actually. And so he was given that heritage, I think, of strong women. And certainly it was strengthened by the woman that he married. I mean, Nellie Huron Taft grew up in Cincinnati, again, upper middle class society as Taft. And her mother was waiting for her to come out as a debutante. But she wanted something more for her life than simply becoming a social girl. So she started teaching at a boys' school. Her mother warned her that you're never going to get into society if you do these odd things. She loved to go to the beer halls in Cincinnati where she could talk politics, which she always loved, with um, workers and laborers. And then finally, she thinks she's never going to marry because she needs to accomplish something in her life. But she meets young Will Taft, and he adores her right away. And he respects her intelligence and promises her that she will be his partner so that was one choice a woman could make in that era, was to become the partner of somebody who would bring a wider world to her. And she's the one who spurred him on into politics. She's the one who loved it more than he did. He said he would have been a judge in Cincinnati had it not been for Nellie. And she was a really activist first lady. As, as, when she got into the presidency, she cared about working women. She opened the White House guest list to a wide variety of people. She created the, she brought the cherry trees from Japan. She created a public park for free concerts. She loved music and was really on her way, I think, to becoming a very great first lady. And we can talk later about what happens to her because I don't want to reveal too much, but we will do it in due time. But in contrast, Edith Roosevelt, it shows how women made different choices at that time. Edith Roosevelt came from a somewhat um, crumbling background. She, too, had a wealthy family. But her father lost his business, his shipping business, became an alcoholic, and they had to move from one house to another lower down. She had originally lived right near Teddy Roosevelt, and they were friends from the time they were little kids. In fact, when he went to Europe when he was 11 years old, he said he was crying at the thought of leaving his best friend Edith behind. And um, they went to cotillions together. They went dancing together, even as she was drawing a protective curtain around herself because her own life was crumbling. But Teddy's life was where she was able to live. And then he, they had a breakup in the summer of his sophomore year at, at Harvard. And he went back to Harvard as a junior. And he fell in love with this beautiful young woman from Boston, Alice Hathaway Lee, devastating to Edith. He married her. And then four years later, she died in childbirth. And he went to the Badlands in a huge depression, certain he would never love again. He said the light had gone out of his life. But as his depression gradually cleared, he came back to New York, ran into Edith, married her, and they had a joyous marriage. Mm -hmm. Probably she was the right person for him all along. But again, in contrast to Nellie, when she became First Lady, she had no interest 
in being a public first lady. She said women should only be in the newspapers twice when they get married and when they're buried. She gave no political opinions. She just wanted to be the wife and companion and, and, and mother of the children so she could have a home, the very home security she never had. So she creates a sanctuary, a safeguard for him for all that manic energy. He comes home to their home. The book is also very much about uh, not just these characters and their families, but Sam McClure, the founder of McClure's Magazine, had a very, very different upbringing than Will Taft, as he was called at the time, and T.D., Teddy Roosevelt, as he was called as a child. But also, right when they are coming into power is the rise of Sam McClure. Tell us a little bit about what, what are the forces at play at that time. Now, one of the things that happens when I write these books is the cast of characters seems to expand because I get so interested in other people. And as I was reading the, the really great historians who've written about the progressive era, they kept talking about this magazine, McClure's Magazine, which was as important in mobilizing public desire for regulation of these social and economic problems as was Theodore Roosevelt himself. So I decided to look into the founding of this magazine. And you're right, Sam McClure had come from Ireland. His father had died. He grew up in real poverty. His mother emigrated to America. He barely made it through college by working year after year after year, but dreamed of creating a magazine that would somehow be a mission for good. So in 1893, at the height of the Depression, actually, that was in 1893, the recession, he created what became known as McClure's Magazine. And he brought to his magazine probably four of the greatest journalists that ever were in one place at one time. Ida Tarbell, who I fell in love with. Ray Baker, who was considered the best reporter of his age. Lincoln Steffens, who's considered still his autobiography one of the best in courses on journalism. And William Allen White, a Kansas country editor who was quoted all over the country at that time. And they really, he gave them two years to write their stories without having to write a word. He gave expenses counts to them, a staff. They were on a staff, very unusual at that time, because he was producing a 10-cent magazine. But what they did was they each uncovered one of the problems and told a story about it that was confronting the age. So Ida Tarbell, for example, wrote about Everybody was concerned about the trusts and the monopolies, but it was abstract. And even Teddy Roosevelt said, they don't understand what they are. So instead, she wrote a biography of in 12 installments in McClure's of John D. Rockefeller and the creation of Standard Oil, and showed the unfair and illegal means he had used to create this monopoly. And as a result of how she became such an important figure in America that a regulation bill was passed on corporations in part because of Ida Tarbell. And Standard Oil was broken up into Exxon and Amoco and all these other places. And, and her work was used as part of the brief that the Justice Department played. So she was considered the Joan of Arc of her time. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there was even um, something in the newspaper that said John D. Rockefeller would pay for any husband to take her. She had never married and take her on a trip around the world and never come back. <laughs> But each of these other writers was equally as important. And these people felt they were changing the country. And indeed, they probably were. And we can talk about their relationship with Roosevelt was extraordinary. And, but so much so that in their later years, the magazine eventually broke up. It was very sad because Sam McClure had a sort of manic depression condition. And it, they, the only thing they knew to do about depression in those days was to send you to sanitariums in Europe where they gave you milk only for three weeks. 
assuming it would change the blood and make you better. So he never really did get better. And in some of his manic phases, mm. they broke apart from him. But in years later, they all would come back and celebrate his birthday when they were in their 70s and 80s and remember this time, this extraordinarily wonderful time when they believed they were changing the world. A really close bunch of people, but let's talk about that fusion with Teddy Roosevelt, the idea that he understood fairly soon that he was not going to be able to change the political machinery that he was dealing with unless he were to appeal to pu public opinion. And the straight line to public opinion was the press. So how did he use the press in his favor? especially relationships, because this is an interesting thing. You know, today, if a politician were cultivating a reporter and having back and forth conversations with them, it might be considered much differently. No, that's right. And the important thing to understand is that what is happening during this period is really the birth of reporters, because in the period really before the Civil War and then even a little bit afterwards, most of the newspapers were partisan newspapers. So if you're a Republican, you're just reading the Republican newspaper, and you're reading editorials more than news. The Civil War finally brought news into focus. If you're a Democrat, you're just reading the Democratic paper. If you're a Whig, you're just reading that. And factual things would widely vary. So if Lincoln's giving a speech in the Republican paper, it's a huge hit, and the people carry him out on their shoulders. It was so wonderful. In the Democratic paper, he fell on the floor and never delivered the speech. So when you get to the turn of the 20th century, it's the first time where you have mass circulation newspapers, national newspapers, and reporters become much more important. And Teddy, just as you said, he understood he needed the reporters. He had his own bully pulpit. He could speak to the country. And what he had to do was he had an old guard who led all the committees and were the leaders in the Congress, his own party, the Republican Party and the majority, wanting nothing to do with any of this new legislation. So unless he was able to mobilize public sentiment to push them and get these bills out of committee, they would go nowhere. So besides his own voice, and he defined the word bully pulpit as the president's platform to educate the country, and that from ever since we've called it the bully pulpit, he needed the press. So he was able, to, he had them come in to breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He had them at Sagamore Hill. They could come in and talk to him when he was in the middle of being shaved in the middle of the day by the barber. He, they, when he was giving, doing mails at the end of the day, they came in. And somehow they were able to keep their integrity even as he grew so close to them because he understood that they would have to criticize them at him at times. And instead of breaking off, as long as they didn't betray a private thing that he said was private, as long as it wasn't completely unfactually right, he accepted their criticism. The famous story of that is that when there was first a, a young writer named Peter Dunn who created this wonderful series in Chicago called Mr. Dooley, and it was very famous nationally at the time, he wrote a review of Roosevelt's um, Rough Rider memoir, and it was very mocking. He said that Roosevelt put himself in the center of attention so much it should have been called Alone in Cuba, <laughs> as if he were the only one there. What does Roosevelt do? He writes him a letter and says, I regret to tell you that my wife and family are delighted with your review of my book. Now you owe me something. I've always wanted to meet you, so you must come see me the next time you come east. And that was the relationship. He had a thick enough skin that he could absorb criticism, even the cartoons that made fun of him endlessly. I mean, there's a famous moment when there was a parade against him when he was police commissioner in New York because he had closed the saloons down on Sundays and people hated it. So this 150,000 people marched against him and they invited him mockingly to be in the reviewing stand and he accepted and he's standing there waving at all these floats that come by. <laughs> 
that are making fun of him. And then finally the headline the next day, they, they came to jeer, but they cheered instead. <laughs> so that's what kept this working in a way that it's impossible to conceive today. Here's a question from the audience. Can you speak to Roosevelt's self-centeredness with regard to his family, his willingness to leave them for months and months at a time? There was a self-centeredness to Roosevelt. In fact, his daughter Alice said that he so wanted to be in the center of everything that he wanted to be the bride at the wedding and the baby at the baptism and the corpse at the funeral. <laughs> but there was also something quite warm and loving about him so that even though he would be gone on these hunting trips, I mean incredibly to imagine today a president going for three weeks hunting in the middle of the woods and the press can't even come after him. In <laughs> fact, I'm sure you probably know the famous story on one of these hunting trips the organizers felt disappointed because he was disappointed because he hadn't been able to shoot a bear. So they actually brought a bear for him to shoot, and he refused to shoot it, thank God. And it was standing by a tree. And then cartoonists made a picture of this bear that he refused to shoot. And then in the next cartoons, the bear kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And then suddenly, toy store owners decided to market the teddy bear. That's where it all began. But you're right, he'd be gone for weeks for that. He went on whistle-stop tours around the country. But Edith understood that he loved her. The kids loved playing with him. And the only one he had difficulty with, and, and it's not a happy story, was his daughter Alice. She was very headstrong. She's a teenager during, the, during his presidency. And she was the child of his first wife, who had died. And he was unable to ever even call her Alice, that was the wife's name, for years. I mean, he, he didn't even, he called her baby or something else because he couldn't bear to say the word. And she never was told about her mother having died, so she didn't understand what was happening to her. And that relationship, I think, was tough because he hadn't dealt with his wife's death in the same way, but the other kids adored him. Well, there are so many parallels to what is going on today at that time. A lot of people talk about it. Are we living in a new gilded age? Just today, uh, President Obama out on the stump, um, using his bully pulpit, I might say, uh, advocating for an increase in the minimum wage and pointing to making the case that income inequality and wage stagnation are threatening upward mobility here in the U.S. Now, I don't know if Teddy Roosevelt or Doris Kearns Goodwin would have some advice for him, but I wonder, he's a great orator. Does this still work? Can, can a, a, a progressive, uh, let me just rephrase that, McClure's had a, a circulation of 400,000, you know, when the U.S. population was a quarter of what it is today. Does any press, does any outlet have that kind of power of changing minds in the landscape that we have now with so many different options? I think that's the real question for today. I mean, they had a bully pulpit, Teddy Roosevelt had a bully pulpit, but there was a focused concentration. When those stories would come out, it wouldn't be just the 400,000, they'd be giving it to their friends, and it became a common conversation in the country. And now when you, th and the bully pulpit worked for a long period of time, when you think about it, after Teddy had understood how to do it. And what was good about him as a communicator was that when he went out on these train trips, which he did for weeks at a time, he spoke in very simple, plain language. He said his Harvard buddies would think that he was too folksy and too homely in his language, but he knew he was connecting to the people. The square deal was the perfect, perfect symbol for where the country was at at that time. He said, I'm not against corporations if they do right, but if they do wrong, I'm gonna get them. I'm not against unions if they do right, but if they do wrong, I'm gonna get them. 
And then he had all these little slogans, speak softly and carry a big stick. And he even gave Maxwell House the slogan, good to the very last drop. <laughs> Indeed, one of the questions about his magnetic energy might have been that he had lots of cups of coffee a day. <laughs> but at any rate, then when he made this partnership with the press, it did become part of a conversation. Then by the time you get up to the next technological change in the radio, FDR too has a similar capacity to reach the country and mobilize public sentiment. He only gave 30 fireside chats in his whole 12 years as president. But as Saul Bellow said, you could walk down the street on a hot Chicago night. Almost 80% of people who had radios would be listening. You could look in the lit windows and see everybody and not miss a word of what he was saying. Everybody glued to their radio. Even in the early days of television, when a president made a speech, there were only three networks. Everybody watched it. They went back to ordinary programming right after it was done. Think about the difference today. I mean, you may be just watching your favorite cable network. You may hear part of the speech. You may hear only the part that that cable network wants you to hear. The pundits are tearing it down before you've even hardly heard the speech. And then our attention span is so much less today that even when you begin to have a discussion about mobility or earlier about gun control, the next thing you know, breaking news has come in. So I think the bully pulpit itself has been diminished. But I think the task before President Roosevelt is much like Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, for President Obama to simplify, to make clear, to explain in language that may not be lofty, but that is very plain spoken. And, and I think that's, that's the challenge that he faces now if he's going to talk to the country about health care. There was also a great deal of discipline inside of the McClure's family anyway. Um, you mentioned Ida Tarbell before, and it's really difficult not to fall in love with her in this book. But she came from circumstances that made her wonder if she was biased against big business, especially Standard Oil. I wonder if you could just illuminate a little bit about that background and how she had to step back and, and, and pursue both sides of this, of this story. No, that's a great question. I mean, Ida Tarbell grew up in Northwest Pennsylvania. Her father had originally been a teacher. Her mother had taught as well, and her mother dreamed of going on for higher education and was possibly going to be doing so. But then the father suddenly got involved in the oil industry as a small oil, small oil man and was making more money than he ever dreamed until John D. Rockefeller's octopus of Standard Oil came in and undid the father's dreams. And then the mother could no longer go on to higher education. They had to simply deal with the economic difficulties in the family. So at the age of 14, Ida Tarbell prays that she will never have a husband so that she can realize her ambitions to write. She's the only, fr only woman freshman at Allegheny College. She graduates way at the top of her class and then wants to be a writer and eventually goes to Paris just with all her saved up money to write a biography about one of the leading women of the French Revolution. McClure happens to see an article that she had written um, just about um, something in Paris in one of the American newspapers which she was doing to keep herself afloat. So he comes up to her fourth floor walkout and says, you have to come and join me at McClure's. And then the first, one of the first big, well, she writes a series on Lincoln and on Napoleon, but then the big series, he wants her to write about Standard Oil. And you're right, at first she hesitated. Could I be fair? Look what's happened to my family as a result. And then she persuaded herself. She really was an historian as well as a journalist. She wrote a really wonderful series of books about Lincoln as well. And she said the great thing about Lincoln that I've often thought of. People asked her even then, why do so many people write about Abraham Lincoln? And her answer was, because he's so companionable. People mm -hmm. want to live with him. And that's exactly how I felt. Mm -hmm. But in any way, when she wrote the Standard Oil series, she went to talk to Standard Oil officials. She got their side of the story. 
and her account really still stands. I mean, later she wrote a character study of John D. Rockefeller that I think was a little bit too biased, but the account of Standard Oil really is almost impregnable even today mm -hmm. because she used those really good techniques of investigation, scouring depositions, looking at every piece of evidence she could get in that two years of research before she started writing. I, I'm trying to imagine if, if investigative journalists or newspapers could fund investigations for two years, what kinds of stories would come out of that? It's hard to imagine. And I think the most important thing, one of the things McClure understood, he kept saying over and over again, the story is the thing. He understood that the way people can care about an issue is not abstractly, as I said earlier about the trust, but if there's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I think, I was just reading a book recently on storytelling where they said, we're hardwired for stories as individuals. And I think when we hear a story, you can repeat it, tell it to a friend, and then it gets into you emotionally. I mean, think of the old days before the age of print, when wisdom from one generation to another was handed down by oral storytelling sitting around a fire. Well, that's still the power of story, and that's what each of these guys at McClure's understood. But in order to write a story that's based on fact, and that's really not just a series of opinions, it takes a lot of research. And that's the time and the, and the generous accounts that he gave to these people. It's hard to imagine where that would happen today, even the time, much less the resources. Well, you talked about the relationship between Teddy Roosevelt and these writers. Did it ever approach, did it ever go over a line? Were they ever a mouthpiece for Teddy Roosevelt? Or I was thinking when I was reading it, it's a little bit like today, you know, the White House manages leaks. They let things out there when they want to. Is it different? Well, I think that it did sometimes go over a line. I mean, with William Allen White, uh, the only one of the four, really, he was actually a Republican activist in Kansas, and he, be he just became enthralled with Teddy the first time he met him, and he still remained a Republican. He was a conservative at the beginning, and then Teddy made him a progressive, but he was actually active in party politics in a way that the others were not, and he... I hardly ever said a critical word about Teddy. The only thing, one time he wrote him a letter saying that he thought Teddy's speeches and writing were getting much too, the sentences were getting much too long, and that he counted one sentence that went on for 27 lines. <laughs> and then again, Teddy wrote him and said, you're absolutely right. And then White wrote back and he said, you gotta look at Lincoln's speeches. You'll just see again when he knew, and Teddy knew Lincoln very well. He said, don't make me contrast myself with Lincoln. He's a genius. Nobody can be <laughs> like him. But you're right about my writing style. So even within that relationship, they could argue about politics and writing. But I think partly what made the relationship so different was he was a writer himself, Teddy. He wrote 40 books. I mean, he said about himself that he was an ordinary person with extraordinary perseverance. And I love this quote about himself because I believe so much in hard work. And he understood that he didn't have a lot of natural talents, he thought. I think that's probably not right. But he said he didn't have good eyesight, but he became a world-class birder. He did, wasn't a good shot, but he became a wild game hunter. He slaved over everything he wrote, but he wrote 40 books, many of them distinguished. He just used every minute as fully as he could. And that age didn't have the distractions we have. That's the other problem with, even if we had investigative reporters today, and we do have some that still are working, would we focus long enough on the story in the middle of Facebook and Twitter and all the things that are distracting reporters and all of us every day? Mm. 
the relationship did not necessarily last. There was a point when Teddy Roosevelt, it, was it in 06, I'm trying right, to remember, um, made a speech uh, accusing uh, uh, many of the press of being muckrakers, made up the term himself. What was going on there? What happened? And what happened because of it? Well, what happened was that even though McClure's magazine had done these really fact-based investigative pieces, suddenly investigative journalism became the thing, and lots of other magazines wanted to follow in its wake, and then some of them didn't use the same fact-based techniques in two years of research and created sensationalist pieces, sometimes like character assassination pieces, particularly one about somebody that Teddy knew very well, and the man was ill and died, and Teddy thought the piece had sent him over the edge. So at a certain point, he gave a famous speech where he said that something is going wrong with journalism and that it's becoming, the reporters are becoming muckrakers, looking down at what's wrong rather than looking up at what's good in the country. And he did not mean these guys. In fact, he specifically told Ray Baker and, and Lincoln Steffens and William Allen White, I don't mean you, but they got tarred with the same brush. And for Ray Baker, I think, and Ida Tarbell, even though they still couldn't get away from their extraordinary idealization—not idealization, but sort of impression of Teddy's colorful nature—it snapped something in them. And I think they never saw him the same way again. Even though later, um, they all adopted the term "muckraker" as a badge of honor. I mean, in journalism history now, to be one of those muckrakers in that early 20th century was a great thing. But at the time, they were very hurt by his characterization. Well. Teddy talks about the need for reform as a, he phrases it often as a struggle between good and evil. Um, Taft does the same things in many ways. The idea that corporations are not bad, it's the bad men who run them. Um, and then the, the, the demagogues who led the radicals astray were also guilty of evil, equally blamed for spreading rot. Now, there, his, his ideas were very pro-social justice, but is there a danger, Doris Kearns Goodwin, of, of policy set by moralism? Isn't there a line somewhere that gets approached where things tip over? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think all of these leaders that I study, and I choose them deliberately that I know I'm going to overwhelmingly have respect and affection for because I'm going to have to be with them every day, waking up with them in the morning, thinking about them when I go to bed at night. I could never write about Hitler or Stalin. So FDR or Lincoln or Teddy Roosevelt all had their strengths, but they all have their weaknesses. And I think there was a sort of moral certainty with Teddy Roosevelt that he was on the side of right. And when it stretched from domestic policy to um, foreign policy, when it stretched to the Philippines, when it stretched to his romanticization of war, that's a part of him that becomes really difficult for me. I, my, my youngest son, Joey, um, is an example of this because he wrote his honors thesis at Harvard on Teddy Roosevelt and he loved him. And then he graduated in June of 01 from Harvard on September 11th. Of course, we know what happened. The next day he volunteered for the army and he was a platoon leader in Baghdad um, under combat for a year, eventually got called back to Afghanistan, earned a bronze star, came out and afterwards, we talked about Teddy Roosevelt, and he said he could never understand how someone who'd been in war could romanticize it mm -hmm. because it was such a terrible thing. 
And that part of him where he thinks America's right and these other countries are wrong, or he thinks war is, he said, made some crazy statement about how war, the victories of war were better by far than the victories of peace, even though as president, he was a rather peaceful president. And indeed, in Portsmouth, um, he had the peace conference with you know the, the Japanese Russo peace conference, which won him the Nobel Prize. So he's a very complex figure. Although he was rattling his saber when uh, to, for the U.S. to get into the First World War, really, oh, really without, rattling Wilson about that. Without question. Well, Indeed, he was anxious. He wanted so badly for himself to get into that war. And when Wilson refused him to go into the war commanding a regiment or something, I mean, he hated Wilson the rest of his life. Well, it's interesting because critics today, especially uh, far conservative critics, often lump in Teddy Roosevelt, Taft, and Wilson as the politicians who their policies permanently and profoundly changed the role of government, um, accusing them of overreach, setting up the Department of Commerce, for, or what was to become exactly. the Department of Commerce, or Internal Revenue Service. So Teddy was making the case that government was the agency of reform, and so was Taft. Is that still the case? Well, I think that you know people who still believe that there are problems that are not met, like mobility problems in this country, I mean, I, I think that it's not just the gap between the rich and the poor that matters. What's more important are when you see studies recently that people born in poverty now have less chance of getting out of it than ever before. America's founded on the thought that if you have enough perseverance and your talents are exercised to their fullest, you will be able to have a good shot at a good life. And to the extent that that's become less possible in recent years, and to the extent that government in the form of education, I mean, the educational system and public education still is an enormous escalator for that possibility of mobility, I think that's important. Um, and I think there's still, uh, there's, the problem has been that government, it's such a big enterprise now, it's bureaucratized in lots of ways, it's hard to get things done, and the faith in government has been diminished in the last 20, 30 years, at the very time when it still may be necessary. But what's so interesting is that exact debate that we were having in 1900, what is the proper role of government, what's the proper role of private enterprise, how much regulation is too much regulation, it's the same debate we're having now. But, and I wish we were really having the debate fully, it's just that we also get distracted. When you think of those primary campaigns in 1912, we were talking about ridiculous issues that had nothing to do with this central question, which is still a real question. How much should the federal government be doing? What should state governments be doing? What should local governments be doing? What should private enterprise do? And those were live issues, exciting issues in 1900, and still should be now, mm. rather than the social issues that we go off on many times. So many other parallels we read about in the book. Uh, you quote Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which had a profound effect on Teddy Roosevelt and, of course, on the uh, creation of the Pure Food and Drug Act at the time. Couldn't help but notice. He wrote that houses were sold with the idea that people would not be able to pay for them. Right. And now we have... Wow, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. something else. There's so he... many things in this book I've already forgotten because it took me so long ago to write it. It's only seven <laughs> years. But, you know, the, the wow. other questions, I mean, you've, you've got a lot of perspective on so many different administrations and a question from the audience here. As then, as now, there was a divided, a deeply divided partisan house and Senate, but also within the Republican Party there was a big insurgency, largely focused out west, um, but was spreading quickly. 
Question here, as majority leader, how would LBJ handle the current polarized and highly partisan U.S. Senate? Well, the one thing one can say about LBJ is during the battle of the government shutdown, all the leaders, if not the entire Congress and Senate, would have been in the White House sleeping and not allowed to leave until <laughs> somehow they came to some resolution. I mean, <clears throat> you know, for, for, I must say I will be forever grateful to LBJ. I mean, I, I sometimes will tease that, you know, I have this fear in an afterlife that there's going to be a panel of all the presidents that I've ever studied and every single one is going to be telling me every single thing I got wrong about them. <laughs> and the first person to scream out will be LBJ saying, how come that damn book on the Kennedys was twice as long as the book you wrote about me? But the truth is, I, I will be forever grateful. That experience of having worked for LBJ when I was a 24-year-old White House fellow, you know, after having become a White House fellow, danced with him at the White House, and then he whispered that he wanted me to be assigned directly to him in the White House. But then it went to a little roadblock when it turned out before I was selected. I'd written an article against him because I was in the active anti-Vietnam War movement. And the article came out in the New Republic two days after the dance with the title, How to Remove Lyndon Johnson from Power. <laughs> and yet, amazingly, he said, bring her down here for a year, and if I can't win her over, no one can. Huh. So I did end up working for him in the White House and then accompanying him to his ranch to help him on his memoirs. And he was at such a sad and vulnerable state in his life that he just wanted to talk. And so we talked a lot about the happiness of what that time was like in 64 and 65, when he really got Democrats and Republicans to work together to produce three great civil rights laws. The political culture was so different then. I mean, Republicans and Democrats used to stay together on weekends, play poker together, drink together. They weren't rushing home to make you know, fundraising dinners. I mean, the real poison in the system today is the money that's being spent to run these campaigns. Um, and we have, to do, we have to do something about it. Indeed, the bill that was passed during Teddy Roosevelt's administration preventing corporations from contributing to um, political campaigns is the very thing that was overturned in mm -hmm. Citizens United. Mm -hmm. So again, if McClure at one point finally said, you know, there's no one left but all of us, I mean, I think LBJ might have helped with the Congress, but what's happened to that political culture is, as we've seen, they view each other almost as tribal enemies now. There's very few friendships across party lines. The media rewards the people with extremes on either side. And um, the districts are now districted in such a way that you don't even have to be moderate. And the amount of time these characters spend raising money is just, it's, it's, it's awful. And they're not doing the country's business. And we all say we'd like to get rid of them all, but we don't do anything about it. So I don't know what the country has to do, whether there's constitutional amendments that have to be passed on this fundraising stuff. Something has to be done about the redistricting. Something has to be done about our primary system. And, and it's, it's, it's the only history that, the only solace history provides is we think these other times were so bad and we got through them. So even though it's hard to see a door out now to make things better, I suspect somehow we've reached a fever pitch of frustration at what's going on in Washington that something will finally break. Mm -hmm. At least I hope so. Now, if we had LBJ around, we might get the Congress to do something. And his ability, I mean, for example, in 1964, when he needed Dirksen, the Republican minority leader, to help break the filibuster on the civil rights bill desegregating the South, he had a friendship with him. He could go to him from a long time, but he goes to him and he's brilliant about it. He first of all offers him everything under the sun. Illinois would be sunk in government dams and public works projects. Today that transparency would be impossible, but it worked then. And then more importantly, he understood Dirksen's own need to want to feel important. So he said, Everett, 
if you can bring some Republicans with me on this bill so that I can break this filibuster, 200 years from now, school children will know only two names, Abraham Lincoln and Everett Dirksen. <laughs> How could Dirksen resist? <laughs> Side note on this question, Mitch McConnell is no Everett Dirksen. <laughs> Well, what I'm hearing, Doris, is, is something that really struck me in the book. You wrote, I think it was in the beginning, that it is my greatest hope that the story that follows will guide readers through their own process of discovery toward a better understanding of what it takes to summon the public demand to the action necessary to bring our country closer to its ancient ideals. Is this a call to action? Is that what you this know, book I, is? I think in some ways it is. One of the reasons I was drawn to this period of time just as I was drawn to the Civil War, just as I was drawn to World War II, is there are certain generations that really managed to have, as FDR later said, a rendezvous with destiny. And to be young, I'm especially speaking to young people at a moment at this time, to be young and to be concerned with the public issues in your country, as people felt in the 1960s. I mean, that's when I was young, and there was something so thrilling about not just the Peace Corps and the women's movement, the civil rights movement, but so many people felt we can change this country, we can make it better. And private lives are always gonna be at the center of where we live, but some of these ages, as I say, World War II or the Civil War or the 60s or the Progressive Era, are ones where the big public issues cut across your private life and you feel part of your country in a very real way. And for generations, I think that makes their lives fuller. And so there's got to be a hope somehow that the right people are going to enter politics still. That's my real worry, that when people look at these characters in Washington, is this what they want, that people can't even come together on the simplest issues? And yet we still need our best people in public life. And if there can be a sense that we have the, I mean, Roosevelt, FDR once said, these problems are created by human beings. They can be solved by human beings. One of his greatest speeches, FDR, was in 1942, where we'd lost at Pearl Harbor, we were losing battles in the Pacific, and country's morale was really down. So he talked about American history in his radio address, and he said, you know, we've been through these tough times before. He remembered what it was like when Washington ran out of supplies and the revolution was won, the pioneers going over the Rocky Mountains, the early days of the Civil War when the nation was splitting in two and it didn't look like the Union would win. And then he promised people there would be valleys, we'd be losses, but eventually the Allies would win. It was so popular that thousands of people wrote to him and said, you have to go on the radio every day. It's the only way morale will be sustained. But he wrote back with knowing insight, saying if my speeches ever become routine, they will lose their effectiveness. And I think that's part of the problem now. We're so used to seeing our president every day that these speeches don't have the same dramatic effect they had if they were held back, but they're covered 24 hours a day. All these characters are. We see them yelling at each other, and you begin to tune it out in a certain sense. Well, I can think of no better place to end but on that hopeful note that we can make a change. But I do want to thank some people before we close. The executive producer and live stage present presentation director of Writers on a New England Stage is Patricia Lynch. Producer and communications director, Margaret Talcott. New Hampshire Public Radio president is Betsy Gardella. Our broadcast and digital producer tonight is Sarah Plord. Music Hall production manager, Jana Morris. Music Hall live sound and recording engineer, Rachel Neubauer. Musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. And photos from Clear Eye Photo. They will be posted online at Clear Eye Photo. And we want to thank this evening's sponsors, 
Jen Madden Realtors and Seacoast Area Libraries and also TransCanada. Please do join me in thanking the wonderful, marvelous Doris Thank Kearns you. Goodman. Thank you.